Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. There's something about the feel of the pen in your hand. Hello, Tess. How are you doing? Love the giant glasses. Your microphone's muted. Todd takes it. He does his magic and it comes out beautiful every time. There I am. The paranormal could be a creative expression of the universe. Well, that was not me. I don't know who that guy was. (laughs) It might be something you collect as a stamp as a kid or a sticker. That lady on the right there, I could Mm -hmm. not deal with that mask. It's been a little synchronicity machine of an episode here. Ed, roll those closing credits. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Cook Unity, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. In our last episode, we brought you the astonishing legend of the Ghosts of Versailles in part one of our series on the Moberly Jourdain incident. Like all legends, the initial event is only the story's beginning. The women who experienced it decided not only to dive deeper into what may have happened, they researched the history of Versailles for a decade and published what would become a best-selling book about what they had witnessed. Tonight, we move past the event itself and attempt to unravel what may have happened to Charlotte Ann Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain. It's important to remember that they did not see and hear the exact same things during their experience. Is that an indication of fabrication? Or is it closer to what a true paranormal experience is like? We've talked numerous times on Astonishing Legends about different people at the same location hearing voices that others don't, or even seeing things that others can't. In today's age, the idea that that can happen is more accepted. So tonight, we'll hear a little bit about the French Revolution, because that context is critical to understanding who Moberly and Jourdain thought they were interacting with. Then we'll talk about another similar time-slip incident in Suffolk, England from 1957 that has a lot of similarities to the Ghosts of Versailles. After that, I'll join our returning special guest co-hosts, Richard Haddam and Marie Mayhew, as they blow your minds with their philosophical takes on the original incident that is the seed of this legend. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Marie Mayhew. Il ne faut pas passer par là, par ici. Cherchez la maison. Translation, you can't go that way. This way, look for the house. An unknown man to Eleanor Jourdain at Versailles, August 10th, 1901. Join us tonight for part two of our series on the ghosts of Versailles. back. Wow. That's kind of weird. We are back. There. Now both you and Rich got to say it. Marie, I hope you feel better. And I've been working on my my Burgess all week, so thank you. That's great. (laughs) Saying that line is a great honor and not, you know, there's a handful of people in the world who have ever said it instead of Forrest. So we're now It's like fewer people than have walked on the moon. That's true. All right, folks, not a lot of housekeeping tonight other than that Forrest will be back soon. He's back for the next show, right? That's my understanding. It's not 100% yet, but definitely for the show after that, if not the next one and the rest of 2024. And I'll say this, I love you guys, but it will be nice to be arguing with Forrest again. I'll try to argue with you as much as I can tonight. You can step it up. I knew I could count on you guys. So uh, people heard about your new show, Rich. We're actually getting a ton of emails and comments online from folks that are dying to know about your podcast. What's the latest, man? How's it going? Maybe you can tell folks a little bit about it. I'm really excited about it. I can tell you the title now. 
The show will come out in March. The name of the show is Richard Hattam's Paranormal Bookshelf. You know me. I used to think I owned a lot of books, but the more I thought about it, they really own me. So this new podcast I've got on every episode, I'll break down one of the books on my shelf and I'll tell you the story inside, but I'm also going to tell you the story of what was happening in my life when I read the book. You know, the memories they unlock and the theories of mind that they fuel and weird connections that only appear when seen at a certain angle in dim light. But you know, it's funny, I've spent my entire life trying to figure out what'll happen to me after I die, but as it turns out, a lot's happened before that. To that end, I will say, because I have seen pretty much all of your scripts for your first season, this show is intensely personal. You're really putting it out there. I was kind of surprised how deep you're getting into your own past and your life as a kid and growing up and your family and everything, and then tying it in with these books, which are amazing. I don't think I've ever heard a show like this in my life in all of podcasting, and and there's millions of podcasts out there. (laughs) I know. It was really funny when you said that you read that first one and you you were thinking it feels like a paranormal wonder years. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it does. I totally get why you said that. And, you know, some of them are about me, and then some of them are very much about the book. Most of them are sort of 50-50. Or my wife likes to call it Supernatural David Sedaris. So it's (laughs) it's sort of that, you know, it's that mixture. There were a few where I was like, I felt like I needed to look over my shoulder because I thought I was, you know, reading one of your private journals from when you were a kid. But I couldn't put it down. So that was the other part of it. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's fantastic. I'm glad you felt that way because that's what this is about. And I want to tell stories that I've never told anyone before. Yeah. So I figured the best way to do it is to start with a giant public audience. And (laughs) your audience is uh, (laughs) the one who gets out there. (laughs) Let the whole world have it. Well, it's pretty exciting. So it's coming out in late March, right? That's the plan right now? Yeah, that's the plan. And I could not be more excited, you know, because it comes down to people always come up to me and say, they're talking about the Mothman prophecies or, you know, any of the episodes I've read, Grimm, Supernatural, all that stuff. And they're like, why do you write this stuff? And the more I think about it, this podcast is the answer to that question. Folks, stay tuned for that. Richard Haddam's Paranormal Bookshelf coming out in late March. Of course, we're going to be keeping you posted on Astonishing Legends. All right. Well, it's time to dive into The Ghosts of Versailles Part 2. Is everybody ready? Are you guys ready to, to ready to do this? Oh, yeah. Ready, Captain. Make it so. All right. That's, that's too nerdy. Don't use that, Sarah. Or at least leave in that I said, don't use it. And then maybe I won't sound as nerdy as I am. All right. So uh, in part one, we brought you one of the most infamous time slip stories in history, the story of Charlotte Ann Moberly and Eleanor Jordan's eerie and seemingly paranormal experience when they visited the Palace of Versailles. They claim to have seen people and scenes from the past, including Marie Antoinette and other historical figures. And in the ensuing decade, Moberly and Jordan conducted extensive research to try to understand what they had experienced and found some historical connections that seemed to align with their sightings. But their story was met with skepticism and criticism. So tonight, we're going to delve deeper into the investigation and the reception of Moberly and Jordan's claims. And of course, what the three of us think might have actually happened on that hot August day back in 1901. And we know that it was hot how? It's called Research Rich. I I looked it up. It was easy. I actually, I got lucky. Sometimes I look up historical weather and it doesn't go back that far, but there was a thing. 1901 was the first year of recorded temperatures. So we almost missed the cutoff. The high in Paris that day, which is about 10 miles or 11 miles east of Versailles, was 26 degrees Celsius or 78 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you know, on your iPhone, you can sort of scroll back through the years to find out, you know, 
was my birthday on a Monday or a Tuesday in 1971 or whatever. Right, right. There's always something creepy about that. Like, I always think if I just keep scrolling and suddenly I'll see like, oh, wait, there's a dot on that date. What was I doing? That was 100 <laughs> years before I was born. <laughs> and I'm always afraid I'm going to click on it and it's going to say something really scary. You're right. And it's weird. And it's one of the things that we started, I, I think we figured out in the second year of the show, one of the things that we did to fact check eyewitness accounts was to try to cross-reference weather or moonrise, sunrise, sunset, and that kind of thing. Because a lot of the stories that people would tell, it's like, oh, I saw this UFO. There was no moon out that night. And then if we go look it up and it was a full moon, it's like, okay, well, that part doesn't track. You know, it's a little bit like that. So now I always like try to look, but you, you do want to put yeah. yourself in the time. Like, what was it like for these ladies when they were there that day? Well, it's about 80 degrees. It's pretty warm. That adds to the whole feeling. It helps you get your head into the moment of... Uh, of what the actual experience was like for them. And they rode a train to get there, right, Marie? How did they get to Versailles in the they first place? They did take a train. And I would also think that the way that they were dressed, just with the many layers, the corset, whatever they had to carry, they were probably pretty warm anyways. They weren't, you know, out in like Birkenstocks and, and cutoffs for this trip. Right. I was always hoping there'd be such a thing as time slip weather. You know, because they talk about it out here in California, like earthquake weather. Ooh, this is earthquake weather. But I don't think there really is time slip weather because I've read accounts that take place in the snow and on cold winter days. So I, I think it's uh, unfortunately that's uh, that doesn't go. It's interesting you talk about that because I think a lot of people think without any sort of scientific background at all about earthquakes, you know, having lived in L.A. myself for a while, the, they think, oh, well, it's, it was a really hot day. So yeah. it's putting the forces down on the on the Earth's crust and it's interacting with the mantle and all of that. And it's like, I don't know if any of that's true. I think it's more just about, well, all the slow sliding that's been going on that you haven't noticed has built up and now there's going to be a crazy pop and that's an earthquake. But the thing about time slips, I will say, that does come up in some of the other stories, when you look up time slips, there's a lot of different ones you can look at online. I mean, not a ton, you know, 15 or 20 kind of famous time slip stories. There are many cases where people report a kind of fog, which I don't know if that's relevant to the weather, but they see the thing in the past in a sort of fog, and then the fog gets really thick, and when it disappears, the thing is gone, yeah. or they can't hear it anymore. It's reassuring to think that there is some type of weather. Again, like earthquake weather, even though we can't control an earthquake, it's always nice to maybe be able to predict it or feel like we have some kind of governance over it by saying there's a certain kind of weather. What's even weirder is like there's definitely nothing with any of these kind of events that tie them together weather-wise, except for maybe maybe fog. I've read about the fog too, but then I'm wondering like if I'm remembering that I read about the fog and there wasn't really fog. There should be fog. The fog thing actually is a thing, and it was a big thing in the story you guys did about the airplane, the flight 419 or whatever it was. It was a time travel one, as a matter of fact. You're talking about electronic fog. Yeah, electronic which fog. Which is different from the ghost plane, yes, which didn't have a flight number, but it's electronic fog, a book written by Bruce Gernon, who was flying a small private plane down near the lower section of Florida in this particular spot where there are frequent violent thunderstorms and strange cloud formations that led him to believe that the time tunnel that his plane went through, and so folks look for this, it's Astonishing Legends, Electronic Fog, it's called, and we interviewed him for this, it was pretty amazing, but like, 
his plane went like 45 miles in two minutes or something like that. I can't remember the exact specifics, but there was sort of a tunnel that it got sucked into and the clouds were doing this weird thing. And he did think that that was a byproduct of some natural phenomenon that occurs down there regularly because in that particular part of the world, thunderstorms and those types of cloud formations are happening all the time. So that's a good point. I hadn't even thought about that. UFO reports often involve people driving into a fog bank and then come out the other side, there's something going on, or even their car stalling out in fog. So the fog thing, I'm becoming a big proponent of stay out of the fog. When Linda Godfrey, uh, who passed away recently, but when she was on our show for her book, Monsters Among Us, one of the things she talked about was a particular incident where a car conked out. And there, at that point, there was, I think, a green fog that had enveloped the area. And there was another case where she talked about a fog that I think it was... A roadkill, we brought this up on the show before, it was a deer, it was a dead deer that was on a fence and they had a trail cam on it because they were trying to capture a werewolf. And they thought maybe there was a werewolf or some kind of dire wolf in this area. The roadkill was there at the fence and a fog came in and you see it on the trail cam. Of course, it's still images, but you see that. And then when the fog goes, the roadkill's gone. So pretty wild. <laughs> oh my God. Pretty wild. Okay. But that's not a time slip. We digress, you know, but still. But I do like what Marie was saying because it shows that people are at least thinking in the right direction when they're saying, well, now, wait a second, maybe there are atmospheric conditions that play into various kinds of phenomenon. And if like if there was some crazy way that you could figure out a connection like that, then theoretically you'd get one step closer to repeatability of the phenomenon or being able to understand why those two things are connected and what could be the underlying cause, and that could help us toward an answer. So you never know. Well, I tell you what, it has been a long time since I moved out of New York, man, but during my 10 years there, one of the places I ate at the most was this amazing French restaurant down on Prince Street in Soho called Raoul's. I know, I'm looking at it right now. I looked it up. It says (laughs) they have excellent martinis. Oh my God, that's right. That's your, it's your jam. They do have, they have all their cocktails are amazing and they have the best steak frites I have ever had in my life. And if you're in the know, you can, you would love this, Rich. You can sit out back in this special garden-like area that you have to walk through the kitchen to get to. It's very Scorsese. So yeah, and just, just thinking about this is like, I just love it. You're walking through and you're like, Hey, Jimmy, whatever. You don't say that. They don't care, but like, it's pretty awesome. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Yeah, no, And it's all one single shot. Uh, yeah, it's it. one shot, no cuts until you're down at the table out there in the back. And the thing is that the tourists that come in there, they don't even know that room's there. They just see locals walking into the kitchen. So it's like you feel really special or whatever. But, you know, you can spend a fortune hunting for local restaurants and bring that kind of satisfaction back to your palate. But why do that when you can have Cook Unity? In fact, if you go to cookunity.com slash AL or enter code AL before checkout, you can save 50% off your first week. But Scott, first week of what? Oh, yeah, I skipped ahead there. Well, the first week of Chef to You service that delivers locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your front door weekly. Oh, we actually get deliveries to the side door because the driveway's on the left no, side no, of our just house. Just so. whatever door, whatever. They, they'll deliver it to whatever door. Yeah, Got but it. Ser- seriously, this is cheaper than other delivery options, and the food is mwah, chef's kiss. So did you find your uh, steak frites? 
Yes, I did. I actually ordered the grilled skirt steak with herbed frites and roasted tomatoes with tarragon aioli. And I am telling you right now, it was like I was right back at Raul's. It was delicious. And better yet, it was locally sourced and prepared. And I was eating right in the comfort of my own home. And did you walk through your own kitchen to a secret back room to make it feel just like Raul's? <laughs> Unfortunately, no. But it, it didn't matter because it was so good. And, and that tracks because the chef in this case is New York chef Chris Rattel. His meals, like all the cook you meals are hand-prepared, fresh in small batches in local micro-kitchens across the country, not giant production facilities. The rosemary in tarragon was so delicious. The steak was perfect. Not over-seasoned, but super flavorful. So wait, so there's no cooking required with this. It's like having chef-quality dining right at home. That's right. Cook Unity works with some of the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to you every week. And here's the other thing. Emily and I are often so busy, we don't have time to cook. We wind up ordering expensive takeout or delivery. It always comes with tons of plastic and utensils, even when you tell them not to send them. Cook Unity's packaging is compostable, recyclable, or reusable. And they do all of that while delivering food that arrives fresh, never frozen, and the packaging keeps it fresh in your fridge for up to seven days. Oh my God, Susan would love this. So how many meals do you get a week? Well, you can do as little as four or up to 16 meals per week, and they have hundreds of dishes to choose from with a constantly updated menu. Plus, you can choose from seven different dietary preferences from vegan to paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Oh, that's great. I'm an omnivore, so I have no issues. This sounds delicious. It is delicious. Folks, you can get this food too. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash AL or enter code AL before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code AL or going to cookunity.com slash AL. This has been a game changer for me, folks. Cookunity.com slash AL for 50% off your first week. Do it now. You're going to love it. I'm doing it. So here's something interesting, Marie. 2023 saw the lowest number of new podcasts since 2018. The, the onslaught took a break, but there's still 3.3 million podcasts out there right now. What? That's insane. How am I ever going to find something I want to listen to? Well, that's exactly it. How do you find the good ones? You ask people you trust. So my question for you is, do you trust me, Marie? Wait, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> do, you, do you trust me? About podcasts, okay, but that's it. Okay. All right. Well, that's fair. That's fair. Well, I just found a great new show. It's a little over a year old and it's called Heart Starts Pounding, Horrors, Hauntings, and Mysteries. All right. I'm liking that one. This is a great show. Folks, if you like Astonishing Legends, you're going to love this show. It's a weekly podcast hosted by Kaylin Moore. Each week, she takes you on a dark journey to a new place, a new time, or a new crime. Okay, I'm looking at the catalog now, and there is some pretty good stuff here. Cursed movies, I love those, including The Wizard of Oz. Oh, and I love that she's got like a travel theme with mysteries from different countries from around the world. That's pretty cool. No, no, it's awesome. And sometimes she actually travels to the places she's covering, which is, that's always fun. Well, from centuries-old curses in Appalachian folklore to Chilean Nazi cults to terrifying urban legends that turned out to be true, Hard Starts Pounding tells the stories, real and imagined, natural and otherworldly, that quicken your pulse and make you ask how well we really know ourselves, our neighbors, and our world, and how well we want to. Many times these episodes involve real journeys as Kaylin travels around the world, getting inspiration from locals, from Tokyo to Washington, D.C., and recently the most haunted city in America, at least according to many, New Orleans. Ooh, okay, Philbrook. What's your favorite? Well, I'm still working my way through all of them, but I, I just listened to episode 42, Human Sacrifice, Dark Rituals Throughout History. Uh, this ep was about Cahokia, 
Yes, a series of mounds discovered west of St. Louis in the early 21st century, including Mound 72, which painted a clear picture of human sacrifice. Super fascinating stuff. Cahokia dates to a thousand years before European contact and was the largest city north of the big cities in Mexico at the time. Kaylin's research and storytelling in this episode is excellent. I love both good research and storytelling. I'm going to check it out. All right. Well, everybody should check it out. So if you're looking to join a passionate community of the darkly curious, check out Heart Starts Pounding at heartstartspounding.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tom, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Okay, so in putting together part two here, I did want to talk a little bit about the French Revolution. And Forrest and I, it's funny because we'll finish a show that has a lot of historical detail like Loftus Hall or Blood Bathory when we talked about Bathory drinking all that blood of the virgins and all that. You go back to these time periods and there's a lot of history to impart. And that's a lot of work for us in terms of getting it concise and explaining it to the listeners who might not have any experience with that. Now, I'm sure that some of you folks out there are experts on the French Revolution, so you can write the emails when I finish this that tell me about all the things I got wrong or any suppositions I made that aren't right. But I did want to give an overview here because what was going on in France at the time of Marie Antoinette, which they specifically think they saw her and may have seen people that were contemporaneous to her, that's important to get the bigger context and understand what Moberly and Jourdain later thought they were witnessing or what they were bearing witness to in terms of the time slip that they experienced. So I'm just going to do a little bit of an overview here. I'm going to try to not get too into the weeds. There's a lot of Louis. Get ready for Louis because all the kings, they became Louis in 14, 15, 16th and, and, and so on. And interestingly today, I saw even though the French monarchy was abolished quite some time ago, there are folks in France now I believe right now there's a guy who calls himself Louis the 20th, but no one's paying attention. (laughs) I love that when it just kind of keeps going, even though it's not official anymore. But uh, (laughs) Scott, the thing to remember, the stuff you're talking about, is that it all happened a long time ago. There's nothing we can do about it now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Some people lost their heads. There was some revolution. There was a little blood. It's all... A little revolution is good now and then, right? Didn't somebody say that? All right, so let's start with Louis XVI. He's the culmination of of Louis that would be around during this time that the ladies thought they were intersecting with this past history. He was going to wind up being the last king of France from a monarchy standpoint. There actually were people later who were called kings, but I'll explain more about that in a minute. He was the last monarch king of France. He was actually born in the Palace of Versailles in 1754. So he was born right there in the palace. And he was in some ways kind of progressive. He was a supporter of the colonists in North America, which I was surprised to read. He was a Dauphine or heir apparent when his father died in 1765, which would be Louis XV. And he became king later when his grandfather passed away. That would be Louis XIV, nine years after that in May of 1774. So at that point, Louis and Marie Antoinette then move into the Palace of Versailles. Now, he had married Marie Antoinette four years before he became king in 1770 when he was 16 and she was 15. Their marriage was part of an attempt to form an alliance between France and Austria. Marie had been born in Vienna. 
Louis XVI believed in the ideas of enlightenment, which, as far as I understand it, this was very cursory research, is trying to do more for the people, being a, a kind of liberal leader, but at the same time retaining absolute control over the people. So I don't know. That's When I read about it, it sounded like being a liberal dictator. So I don't really understand enlightenment. Marie, you are a better student of history and much better read and more educated than I am on this. If you have anything to add on the Enlightenment period, be sure and and throw it in here. Culturally, they're getting more into philosophy. There's more questions. There's more paying attention to the natural science. But they're still monarchs, right? They're still still the God-appointed rulers of France. So they can only be so benevolent towards their people. Right, right. We're going to have to draw a line here somewhere in terms of the benevolence. Well, he did try some ideas like deregulating the grain market, but that backfired and bread prices skyrocketed. And after some poor harvests, he had a revolt on his hands. In a movement called the Flower Wars in 1775, there were riots all over France. And history looks back on this now as one of the seeds of the forthcoming French Revolution, although it's going to take some time to play out. So things aren't going great. But I guess he's hoping for the best. In 1778, three years after the Flower Wars, he gifts Le Petit Trianon, which is where the ladies had most of their experiences, a small chateau on the grounds of the palace to Marie Antoinette for her to use as a private retreat. The optics on that probably weren't great (laughs) because the optics were already bad on Versailles, especially when people are revolting. Louis's father, Louis XV, had had the idea for the Petit Trianon in 1758, when Louis XVI was just four years old. So by the time the architect had made the plans and it was completed, it was 1768. And uh, Louis XV's other idea was that it would be a private place where he, this is Louis XVI's dad, could hang out with his mistress, the Comtesse du Barry, B-A-R-R-Y. But also Louis XV had wanted a pavilion large enough for himself and some of his entourage to live in, according to the official website of the Palace of Versailles. So they wanted a place where they could hang out with all the ceremonial pageantry and protocols, a more private place away from the public's prying eyes. So they then called this smaller building Le Petit Trianon because there was already a much larger marble Trianon that would become known as the Grand Trianon. That had been built by Louis XIV. So we're going back a few generations now. That was Louis XVI's grandfather, where the village of Trianon had stood before then. That's where the name comes from. When do we get to the era of Louis Louis? Uh, (laughs) Louis Louis? <laughs> we got to go now. Is that around this time? Yeah, no, that was a little bit later. And it's too bad they didn't listen to that song. They might have gotten out of there. They might have been more popular. Heads, um, or not. Yeah, that song's crazy too. Because if you look it up, they, people aren't really sure where it started. I love that's one of those songs where I think like, we know where it started. Now. <laughs> well, so coming back to Louis the Fifteenth, he actually died in the Petit Trianon of smallpox. So that's the granddad that when he died, Louis the Sixteenth became king. He died in Le Petit Trianon. So circling back, Louis the Sixteenth gave the Petit Trianon to Marie Antoinette in seventeen seventy eight. She started redecorating all of the outside areas, including the gardens, to make them more current in design. Which we hear about this with uh, first ladies. Whenever they go to the White House, they start changing the gardens or whatever. So it's a pretty typical thing when you're leading your country. It was said to be her favorite part of Versailles and her favorite place overall. So 11 years later, after she had been given Le Petit Trianon, in 1789, the French Revolution began with the storming of the Bastille on July 14th of that year. 
So if you think about this, it's been coming for at least 14 years now since the Flower Wars of 1775, which were a result of Louis XVI deregulating bread. So the Bastille was a medieval armory in prison, and insurgents successfully took it over on that day in 1789. And one of the reasons they went for it was because it was seen as a symbol of tyranny and the old ways of the monarchy. It was still kind of locked in the past. The next morning, Louis XVI asked Duke de la Rochefoucauld if it was a revolt, to which the Duke answered, in French, obviously, I'm going to do the English, no, sire, it's not a revolt, it's a revolution, which is not something you want to hear from one of your trusted people at this point. On October 5th, 1789, an event known as the October Days, or the Women's March on Versailles, or also just the March on Versailles, happened as women in the marketplaces were fed up with how expensive bread had become. After six hours of marching to Versailles, the spontaneous group turned into thousands of people who marched there and besieged the palace. Six women from the group were nominated to go talk to the king in person, and they made their demands, but he also turned on his charm. Apparently so much charm, one of the women supposedly fainted. It could have been hunger and the fact that they were marching for six hours, but sure, I'm sure he was very charming. Yeah, I mean, she was worn out. It wasn't Louis' charm that made her pass out. Promises were made, and the women thought they had triumphed, and they left thinking, okay, he heard us, uh, things are going to be good, but it didn't take. On October 6th, the very next day, the crowd forced Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette to return to a rundown royal castle in Paris known as the Tuileries from Versailles. More on the Tuileries and their time there in a minute, but the royal court would never again be at the Palace of Versailles. That was the true end of not only Louis XVI's power, but of monarchy in France. The people believed the events leading up to this were all part of a plot to starve the poor on purpose. This was essentially an early conspiracy theory. In fact, in April of the same year, there was a rumor that crops were being burned to help that happen. So while the newly formed government, the assembly, was reforming the government, the king was telling them only some of what they were planning was okay with him. Again, bad optics. He's already been chased out of Versailles. They're kind of holding him. He's like, no, you can't. I, I get that you guys want to do this, but no. Uh, he was amassing some troops to try desperately to retain power. But on September 21st, 1792, the monarchy was officially abolished and the first French Republic was born. The monarchy would be restored in 1815, but that's another story. A little under four months later, Louis XVI is executed by guillotine. Nine months after that, Marie Antoinette is executed the same way. Now, even Napoleon felt that Versailles' image of monarchy was tainted, and during his tenure as emperor, which was relatively brief compared to everybody else, he chose to stay in the Grand Trianon. He had hoped to restore the palace, but it was too costly, so he focused on the restoration of the Grand and Le Petit Trianons. Later, in 1833, King Louis-Philippe, which is, this is not really a monarchy, is he was a ruler of the people but not the country, kind of like the monarchy in England. He spent five years turning the Palace of Versailles into a museum. Napoleon III, an elected president, would actually instigate a coup in December of 1851 to restore an imperial title to himself. He actually wound up being the one that opened the Petit Trianon to the public during his reign, dedicating it to Queen Marie Antoinette. So that's kind of the overall history there. And, the, it, you know, that's a sum up of a lot of complex things happening politically and um, in terms of a revolution. I actually got so interested in it, I now want to go read like a Mishnah book about it or something. I got to find something because it's a really fascinating story how all of that stuff came to pass. I've never paid a lot of attention to it until we got to this story, which is another one of my favorite things about Astonishing Legends. It's like, hey, we're going to tell a ghost story. And it's like, 
oh, wait, side note, the French Revolution is kind of cool. Let's learn about that. So, like, I, I enjoyed that. Wait a second. So are you trying to, like, teach us something? No, no, I don't want to do that. Everybody will turn the podcast ah. off. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> we just want to have fun. <laughs> you just want to have fun. But the reason I'm doing this and the reason I'm going over all this is because it's to give you a set of circumstances that explain again, the optics and how people are perceiving the monarchy and Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI and all the Louis with all their houses on these palaces and all this kind of stuff, because this frames the experience that Moberly and Jourdain have and the people they're seeing and the interactions when you take it and you apply that filter of like, oh, well, they're seeing back in time because they're 1901. They're way after all this happened. But maybe what they're seeing is the deconstruction of the monarchy happening, some glimpse of that. And one of the things that we, again, have talked about on the show, you talk about theaters and places that supposedly are haunted or have ghosts and it's high traffic places or places of great import, which obviously Versailles was. And the Le Petit Trianon was very important to Marie. So Antoinette, right. not Mayhew. So uh, it might be important to you, Marie. I don't. I wouldn't lose my head over it. Good night, folks. You've been great. <laughs> no, but Scott, that's a that's a really good point because the first thing people ask is if somebody has a supernatural experience, they see a ghost, there's a time slip. If it's entirely subjective, the question becomes, well, what did they know and what were they expecting? Right. Exactly. You know, if you and I, like, I, I would have no expectations going to Versailles because I am ignorant. I'm pretty ignorant about American history, too, but... You know, the classic example being Gettysburg. If I went to Gettysburg, I'd at least have some vague feeling of, wow, this is where a big battle in the Civil War took place and a lot of people died. And there's probably a few images in my head from pop culture that if I then had a supernatural experience, it might just be mimicking things that already existed in my imagination. Right. So you do have to ask those questions. What did people know? What were they expecting? what were the real facts of the history of a place? And did the people who witnessed something see something that A, is accurate, and B, they had no way of knowing? That's right. And I want to circle back to that too, Marie, yeah. because you had said too that, I can't remember if one or both of them claimed that they were relatively ignorant about French history. Well, both of them, when questioned later, said that they were ignorant of French history. They didn't study it and they had no perceived notion about Versailles. But I do think Rich brings up a really interesting point that we're going to start talking about with influence. And that like, you might have some notion of it, but you don't have an awareness of it. And that's, that I think is going to be really relevant with this case. And when you start to talk about what does influence mean and some theories behind it, to me, it just gets kind of murkier. But I think that that's interesting because, again, it's like conscious versus unconscious. Like consciously, you don't know a lot about American history, but unconsciously, you may know more of a newarty than you think. Consciously, they said that they don't know very much about French history, but Jourdain had been living there already. And people that know her said that she was sort of a Francophile. So she was very much invested in France, French culture, art, et cetera. So... So I want to come back to that when we're talking about the philosophy of the story, because that's really interesting to me. It's like, what, what's the reason that she said that she didn't if she turns out to be a Francophile? Is she just trying to bat down critics or is it because she knows this is a story and she's trying to make it more believable? I want to talk about the possible origins of that. 
But before we get on to that and the philosophy of what might have happened here and the ideas behind what we, what the three of us think, I do want to talk very briefly about Marie Antoinette and the expression, let them eat cake, which is a famous expression attributed to her that supposedly she was just so cold and disconnected from the French people that this is what they, when people were complaining about the price of bread, she said, let them eat cake. So I was wondering, like, that didn't come up, and it certainly doesn't come up on the Versailles official website for the palace. It didn't come up in a lot of the historical information. So I was like, well, you used to hear that all the time, but you don't hear it so much anymore attributed to her. But when I was a kid in the 80s or whatever, and you were playing Trivial Pursuit, they would, you know, it would say, who said let them eat cake? And you'd be like, Marie Antoinette, and you get a, a wedge, and you're moving further Turns out, not really the case. I'm going to read this straight from Wikipedia, which, by the way, for people who criticize Wikipedia, there was a time when it wasn't great. I'll have everyone know that uh, it is now considered uh, more accurate than Encyclopedia Britannica, so I don't hesitate to uh, quote it on a lot of things. Forrested and I have talked before about the group of, I can't remember what they are, the guerrilla skeptics or something, who go through all the paranormal Wikipedia pages and try to harshly debunk them and call everything pseudoscience. That's not cool. That's definitely a thing out there, and I would I would be critical of that, the close-mindedness surrounded around their approach to paranormal entries on Wikipedia. But historically, it has been proven to be very accurate. So here's what it says about let them eat cake. Let them eat cake is the traditional translation of the French phrase qu'ils mangeant de la brioche, said to have been spoken in the 18th century by, quote, a great princess, end quote, upon being told that the peasants had no bread. The French phrase mentions brioche, a bread enriched with butter and eggs, considered a luxury food. The quote is taken to reflect either the princess's frivolous disregard for the starving peasants or her poor understanding of their plight. Although the phrase is conventionally attributed to Marie Antoinette, it can actually be traced back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Confessions in 1765, 24 years prior to the French Revolution, and when Antoinette was just nine years old and had never been to France. Remember, she was born in Vienna. The quote was only attributed to her decades after her death, and historians do not believe that she is likely to have spoken it. So I just want to put the record straight on on her behalf. I feel bad for her getting kicked out of her tiny house that she loved and then having her head chopped off. So, But I don't know. She may have been an awful person. Again, send the angry emails to uh, Forrest. But (laughs) 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 even though we had nothing to do with this particular episode for once, but uh, (laughs) hey, look, you don't show up, you you get stuck with the angry emails. That's right, you get stuck with the angry emails. Yeah. So we mentioned this in part one. I want to go back to Jordan's second visit to the grounds because it was a year later. They were collectively reflecting on what had happened to them. So she went back on January 2nd, 1902. This totally blows me away because this is like going back to the place where you saw a UFO a few months ago, going back a few months later on some random night and seeing the UFO again. Yes, exactly. And I have a thought on that, but I'm going to wait till we talk about like, just, I just want to talk about the things that she saw while she was there when she went back. And then I have a thought about her encountering something again, based on history of the show and and research that we've done all of us over the years. But what she said was when they, she got there, initially she went straight to Le Petit Trianon and she's walking over to the Hameau, which is the Queen's Hamlet. This is a rustic retreat on the grounds of Versailles. It's yet another building. It's essentially a little farmhouse, little, not to us peasants, but like little to them, on the grounds for the Queen to retreat to for leisure and to feign a sense of Versailles being 
more out in the country. So when you see this, it looks like a little Tudor style house on a lake and there's different buildings and there's a barn for cows and that sort of thing. So she would go there and hang out with her friends. Very. This is this the next step down because Le Petit Trianon and the Grand Trianon were already places that they were going to get away from the actual palace in Versailles with all the pomp and circumstance. But now they're taking it another level down. They just keep getting more buildings that are, I guess there's probably something else where you can just sit around naked and drink beer. I don't know. It seems like each building, we can really let our hair down in this one. So that's what the the Hamlet was. Like the VIP room, VIP room. Yeah, exactly. Like the VIP room at the Viper Room. You ever been in there, Rich? Did you ever go in that VIP room at the Viper Room? No, I have never been in the VIP room at the (laughs) Viper Room. Yeah. That's all I'll say about that. Okay. 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 (laughs) I don't get really dirty unless Forrest is here to get upset. Anyway, I digress. Mm -hmm. So coming back to what she's seeing now that she's going over to the hamlet, she saw this cart being filled with sticks by two laborers that wore tunics and capes with pointed hoods, bright colors. She said it was a terracotta red and a deep blue. I told uh, Marie and Rich off the air before we started tonight. For some reason, I'm thinking of the Led Zeppelin album cover, but that's not really a cart. That poor old guy's carrying the sticks on his back. He didn't have a cart. So, um, and then they recently discovered where that picture came from. They think they know who he was. And he wants uh, credit? He long dead, long Thank dead. Thank God. Maybe his descendants do. So anyway, she saw the cart being filled with sticks by two laborers. Then she like turned to look at something else. And when she looked back, they were gone. No trace. Even though she had a really long field of view, there was no way that they could have disappeared that quickly. That's what she said. She then said that she saw a man in a cloak in the woods and that the smoothness of his movement attracted my attention, end quote. That's that detail, which you don't really have the semantics for back then like you do now when you're talking about paranormal stuff. And it's like, oh, no, uh, the person was walking. In fact, uh, one of the people that told one of my favorite stories from uh, Halloween this past year talked about this man who was approaching her in a truck. And he was walking very slowly, but his body was moving rapidly towards her. And it's a scary sort of feeling that's oh right that's very paranormal in its nature and that's what this sounds like to me the smoothness of his movement attracted my attention because that's how she's describing it sounds like he's floating i would almost interpret that he is a aristocrat or that he is one of the um court smoothness of motions is he was graceful yeah well-mannered yeah maybe that's how i would think of it Right. Maybe he had it like he was holding a doily. He bowed. I mean, but again, like to yeah, me, it indicates, just... you know, the smoothness of motion. Okay. So I mean, I shouldn't jump to paranormal. I should jump to rich nobility. It's 50-50. It's 50-50. I'm the dispatcher and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. Well, so the next thing she sees, or hears, I should say, she doesn't see, she hears a group of people rushing around her, and she can hear fabric as though they're all dressed in fancy clothes. They're walking all around her very quickly as if they're on their way to a party, and she also heard music in the distance, but she saw nothing when she was hearing this stuff. Yeah, and I love this because this is like that story I told about the guy who heard the wagon train, where... The sounds were there. Yes. It does make it feel like there is something atmospheric or physical going on where in certain circumstances, only uh, sound travels. Right. Then in other circumstances, sound and images travel. 
Right. Yeah, so I don't know, but there's something I I always love that detail where you get one but not the other. I love it too. That kind of experience, you know, people talk about it now when they go, they do a paranormal lockdown and they hear these things at Waverly or wherever they're at. And it's the same kind of thing. And that's what they're describing back then. But this is very early in the age of identifying the language to describe these types of events. Another thing that happened was that in all these people are passing by her, she heard voices and she clearly heard someone say, and she said it was right at her ear. Someone was saying, Monsieur et Madame, like they're trying to direct people. Uh, And she heard that right next to her ear. With the voices and the music, this is another thing, and you'll have to tell me what you think here too, Marie. It's like, she said that the voices and the music were diminished in tone, almost like in a phonograph and unnatural. She said the pitch of the band from the music she heard was lower than usual and that the sounds were intermittent. So whatever she was experiencing orally, and I don't mean O-R-A-U, orally, she's saying the pitch is down for the music, the voices are coming and going, aside from the one that's close in her ear, So she's describing what sounds to me like a very ethereal experience. Yeah, and the pitch. So the the pitch meaning it is softer or the pitch meaning that it's deeper? I think she's implying that the tone, because she says, yeah, it's lower. She's implying that the tone is lower. Now, when I think about this, you know, because I used to be an editor, I think, you know, when we're doing a pitch shift, we lower the tones or your voice sounds, that's a lower pitch, you know? So if that's what's happening with the music, it's like when Hal is dying and singing his song in 2001, the pitch is shifting. Yeah. Daisy. Does that mean that it's slower? Like when you play a record at the wrong speed? Is that what she's describing? Well, she's not being specific here because you can reduce pitch and maintain speed with sophisticated technology these days. You can actually do that. I don't know that she would have ever thought that. She may have just thought of a, a record winding down at that time, which would be slower and low, like, you know, slow and low, like the Beastie Boys would say, or it could just be low and not slow, but she doesn't really specify that. But when she says the pitch is lower, to me, that's deeper. The voice, either the voices or the music is deeper than it should be. It's like waving in and out. It made something occur to me, which I don't know if I've ever heard of before with people searching for EVP and getting voices, but have we ever recorded the sounds of the past? Have we ever gotten that, that sort of the cacophony of the abandoned insane asylum back from when it was an active therapeutic location? Do we ever get stuff like that? Weird music, stuff from the past? Have you guys ever heard of that? I feel like I have heard of that being recorded, but I don't have clear cut cases of it. And I don't know. That's one of those things where Without the provenance and the chain of custody, you'd have a hard time believing it, even if someone said they did get it, if you weren't there yourself as an eye and ear witness, you know, right? because it would be easy to just take an old recording and say, I heard this and put a reverb on it. And like, I heard this at Waverly or whatever, but that's an interesting idea. Yeah. Look, any EVP can be questioned in terms of provenance, you know, unless you were there, it could just be somebody in the room saying something. But I guess I've never heard of someone saying, okay, we went to this place, we turned on our tape recorders, we asked questions, but instead of answers to those questions, we got this. And then they play something, which I would love, and I'm a little disappointed, even if it was a lie, why no one's done it. 
that may be out there. Those may be out there. So uh, for our listeners who have done investigations or participated in them or heard of other podcasts where they've mentioned this type of thing, if that exists, uh, send us a note. I would love to know more about that because that is a fascinating idea. I mean, we have had Connor Randall on, who's worked with the guys from Hellier, talking about the Estes method and how that works. And it's, it's and also they've gotten some interesting EVPs. James Willis has gotten EVPs too, but I don't ever remember him saying that those EVPs seemed out of time or place. So I do want to know more about that. That's a really interesting idea. So again, going back to this, Jordan actually inquired. She left for the day after she had all these weird experiences. She went back to the palace and at Versailles and asked if the band had played that day. And they told her, no, they hadn't actually, because she was there on January 2nd. They had played the day before because that was New Year's Day. It was January 1st and that they weren't there that day. So whatever music she was hearing, that's not where it was coming from. So she then goes around apparently and is asking some of her French friends questions about her visit there and other lore that surrounded Le Petit Trianon. And and also I think the Hamo, because there was one window that I know that she went to, the Hamlet, and it was shuttered. And so she asked, why is this window closed? And apparently it was because people would routinely look in it and they would apparently see Marie Antoinette in there churning butter. I guess she would go in there and churn butter for fun. And so I guess so many people were looking in the window, they closed it. This comes back to that thing that Forrest says about when an institution reacts to a ghost story. Because at this point, people are going here for tours. And it's like, stop looking in this window to see the ghost Marie Antoinette churning butter. So we're going to close the shutters so you can't look in here anymore. And it's like, but wait, does that mean there's a ghost in there for real? Or you're just tired of people? Maybe it's a rumor. And you don't want people to look in the window anymore. From what my understanding was, is they would close the shutters on this little farmhouse to give her privacy because you had the queen doing something right. relatively undignified, right? Very pastoral. Right. But why would it still be closed in 1901 then? Uh, no idea. But I mean, I think that that's where the, the idea of like, and then it would be open if it would be open, she wasn't there. So that was also how they knew if she was in right, attendance right, right. or where she was. Uh, they would be like, oh, the okay. she's milking her okay. favorite cow. Here's one of the most interesting facts that Jordan learned on that second visit. Marie Antoinette's last day at Le Petit Trianon was October 5th, 1789. Now, keep in mind, when Marie and Jordan went and had their experience, that was August 10th. So this was October 5th, 1789, August 10th of 1901, obviously much later, but the month and day don't correspond either. Antoinette was sitting in a grotto and she saw a page running towards her, bringing the letter from the minister at the palace to say that the mob from Paris would be at the gates in an hour's time. This would be the Women's March on Versailles that I mentioned earlier in the timeline. And they're coming because they're so mad about the cost of bread, among other things. The story went on that she impulsively proposed walking straight back to the palace by the shortcut through the trees. The page would not allow it. Instead, he begged her to go to la maison to wait whilst he fetched the carriage by which she was generally conveyed back through the park, and then he ran off to order it. And so the thing that I thought when I heard this, and I think that they might be implying, but Marie, you have to tell me if I'm wrong, was that on their first visit, when they were told uh, the opening quote, il ne faut pas passer par là, par ici, chercher la maison, you can't go that way, this way, look for the house, that maybe that page was an echo from the past of the instructions he was giving to Antoinette as she was waiting for a mob to come and confront her. No, I, that is exactly what it sounds like. And that's exactly what they interpreted it as. I think what's interesting is they're interpreting it, at least upon the first read, is they are it is occurring a full year after the actual event. So they didn't really have a context 
the actual event in 1901. They just had this weird event of this guy running up, saying something to them in French and then vanishing. All of a sudden they have this context of what it meant. I think one of the things, again, that I would go back, it maybe is worth double checking is if this was something they practiced too. So they would have had the page being able to find her or, you know, that they had rehearsed this knowing that there was civil unrest and that they could be, you know, um, there was a siege coming or something like that. That's right. No, I read that too. You're right. You, I, I read that as well. Yeah. What's the yeah. procedure? Yeah. yeah. They had sort of lockdown procedure for stuff like this. But I think it's interesting that it appears without any kind of context. And then a year later, you kind of get the backstory. She gets the backstory on it. And that could be a thing, or it doesn't have to be a thing. You know, people make fun of people who do past life regression. And if they, in a past life, were anybody famous, then it's like, oh, well, of course you were a famous person in a past life. You weren't just one of the, you know, common people. But it's sort of the same applies here. Just because they were in the past, even if they were in the past, if they were actually seeing something from the past, there's no reason that we need to assume it was because something very dramatic was happening at the time or on that day or it was a special anniversary. It might just be a common moment from the past that for whatever reason gets tossed up in front of them and that's what they experience. And then I don't know if they're trying to connect it to something of historical import, but I will say this, not a lot of what they said sounded like it was them re-seeing a famous event from history. We can make that one comparison, but outside of that, it sounds like, well, I saw a guy, someone said something, we saw a lady painting. That was pretty much it. Right, right. I see where you're coming from. I do think, I don't necessarily think that they're trying to piece it together. I think it's sort of a a weird little, not really well-known, like, thing that happened to them that does sound like that's what that could have been. That's the page, the uniform the page was in, how they described it, you know, the sense of urgency. I don't see it would be that that far out. To me, it makes sense. One of the things that they suggested was this possibility that they were experiencing Marie Antoinette's memories, but at a time when she would have already been gone from the grounds along with Louis and her kids in Paris, because that's where the mob had taken them. Here's the fascinating thing, right? You remember that we mentioned the day after the Women's March on Versailles, October 5th, 1789, the royal family was escorted from Versailles back to the decidedly more modest and somewhat dilapidated royal castle, Tuileries Palace in Paris, right on the Seine River. Now, during the royal family's time there, the new French Legislative Assembly began slashing costs that supported the monarchy. A few times while the family was there, there were rumors that assassins were going to attack the Tuileries and kill Louis and Antoinette. And and during one of those times, 400 noblemen came to defend them, but uh, nothing happened. In June of 1791, after the family had been at the Tuileries 18 months, so like a year and a half, they tried to flee the country only to be captured and brought back. 14 months after that, in 1792, several thousand French citizens carrying guns, daggers, farm tools, and pieces of wood attempted to sack the Tuileries, and they succeeded. The king and the royal family fled to the Legislative Assembly building to hide. The mob attacked the Swiss Guard, who had nearly a thousand soldiers there prepared to protect the royal family. They fought valiantly, but they ran out of ammo about midday, and they were overrun 
and the mob proceeded to hack them to death with axes and whatever else they could get their hands on. And then they dismembered them, displaying their various limbs and heads to the crowd, who obviously was going insane. And then they fed those parts to dogs. 650 of the Swiss Guard were killed. 250 were jailed. They would die later in riots. All of this happened on August 10th, 1791. By the way, the next day, the king was suspended from rule. 109 years later, to the day, Charlotte Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain would visit Versailles, and particularly Marie Antoinette's favorite spot in the world, Le Petit Trianon. So even though the royal family was not present at Versailles on that exact anniversary date, they had already been moved, Moberly and Jourdain wondered if it was possible that the drama unfolding in a terrifying and horrific way all around Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI at the Tuileries had somehow encouraged Marie to be dreaming of her former safety, comfort, and happiness at Le Petit Trianon. And maybe Moberly and Jourdain were somehow interacting with the daydreams of her fear and sadness over what had been lost. Marie was to be executed just two months later in October. So guys, this is a sophisticated suggestion from a paranormal standpoint, at least I think so, especially in 1901, that they were participating in a haunting that wasn't just a haunting of actual events, even on the actual day, what they were seeing there, but a haunting that might be connected to someone's memories who wasn't even there that day or that year. Marie Antoinette was in Paris. It's, it's like an inception paranormal thing, but they've gone two degrees down, like two levels into it. That's what they pitched that they thought might have been happening. And I thought that was a really sophisticated suggestion of a paranormal explanation for what they experienced. Absolutely. Especially for that time. That sort of, like you're saying, that kind of inception would be something that was very different. It's a barometer of her emotional state is kind of yeah. what they were tuning into. Again, that they're feeling this influence. It maybe is not sequentially right or the right day, but it's like these major events that would have caused anxiety or strife within Marie Antoinette, and they are kind of seeing little tableaus or little stagings of it, you know. And again, it's, it looks like a stage. The non-playing characters are kind of frozen or say the exact same things, or um, and they're distinctly different kind of different pieces or different acts. It does, to me, it feels like it almost is more of an emotional reading of that than an actual historical. We can't prove she was there on this day, so it doesn't take effect. Right. That's the detail that's wrong. And that's the thing that, you know, Forrest and I come back to it a lot about the Conjuring House story where the one person who was a skeptic was like, well, that can't have been a ghost there because it actually lived three doors down. It's like, well, it's the same thing here. It's like, oh, well, we're picking and choosing what year might be intersecting here. One of the things that I've been researching lately is the holographic universe idea, not to get too far off the off the rails here, but I, I've been reading a little bit about this and understanding the ideas of it for the first time. And I can't remember now the uh, philosopher was talking about it, but if you take this idea of throwing three stones into a bowl of water and the stones go in the water and then up at the top, you get the ripples that are bouncing off each other and you get a pattern in the top of the water. And let's say you freeze that instantly, you flash freeze it and it's frozen. And so now you have this record of how the stones reacted to the water and in the bowl. And that's data. It's almost like metadata because there's only one result that can come from how those pebbles went into that bowl. But then the other thing that it's suggested there in a holographic standpoint is if you then take the frozen contents of this bowl out and it's frozen ice and it's got the three stones that were in the bottom and the ripples that are frozen, and then you drop it on the ground and the ice shatters into little pieces, 
that metadata is in all those little pieces as well because there is a very specific environmental state that has recorded what exactly happened in that moment when the stones were dropped in there and then flash frozen. So this holographic data exists outside of linear time. It does not matter. There is no forward or past or present or future. And this comes back to Einstein just loosely saying that time is happening all at once, but we can't perceive it that way. So if you take this idea, and then I think about also when Brandon Masulo came on our show with his first book, The Ghost Studies, he studied paranormal psychology in um, Edinburgh. And he wrote this book. And one of the things he talks about in the book, we had him on the show a while back, is crisis apparitions, which are the ghosts that people see of their loved ones right at the moment that they have fallen down the stairs or they've had, they've been in a car crash or something. And then they appear in the living room of their child or their parent or whatever. And that's a crisis apparition. So when we take all this and tie it together, this is my freshman concept of holographic universe ideas. I'm hoping in a few years from now to be way more developed on this, like I am about other thoughts that have happened since we started the show. But there's an idea to me that you have this really prominent figure in Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI. They're both very prominent figures. They were in this place that's a high traffic area, a ley line, almost a spiritual ley line in terms of the monarchy and the de-evolution of France's government, all happening along with death, decapitation, and these prominent memories that they're having. And to me, the possible intersection that Moberly and Jourdain may have had may have been a cross-sampling of a holographic moment in Marie Antoinette's existence. And it's that metadata that is existing there that they're seeing, and time is irrelevant to it. Did I explain that right? I think you nailed it. Let's listen to some Zeppelin. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I do think that. And I think that it's okay that it's not linear. It's okay that it's not, you know, that that there's no neat buckets on it. It kind of reminds me of the other story, Picnic at Hanging Rock. It has that similar, sort of a similar feel to it where there's not a lot of resolve and there's seeming like like a lot of random sort of time slip things happening. That's a fictional story, but it is, it it has the same feel to it. And to me, it's like, that is more plausible to me as being something that could happen than something that is sequential. Joan Lindsay, for credit. Joan Lindsay, it takes place in 1900, exact time period we're talking about here. But it was it was published in 1967. Yeah, it's more plausible than something that is a linear timeline. Like if it plays out as a linear timeline, I don't know that. To me, it's just uh, that's too neat a package in a way. It's too pat. Yeah, yeah. It's not unheard of people with psychic abilities. So if we posit that people who are able to feel these vibrations, they go to places and they're able to say. I'm feeling the emotion of this place. Usually it's not positive, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it's like, oh, this is a very warm environment. There was a very happy family here. Often we're hearing, oh, this is, there's a lot of bad vibes here. But that can be because of what's currently going on, because of some sort of force or presence that is currently inhabiting a physical space. But otherwise people are open to those emotions and in the retelling do seem to connect with human emotions being connected to supernatural events. Hi, this is John Paul Decker, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. 
So I got a little ahead of myself on the philosophical stuff, but I'm glad I said my piece there. So I, I did want to say a couple of things. One part one, I mentioned another time slip story that I thought had taken place at Gettysburg. I could not find that. I think I was conflating another story with that. I do want to mention briefly, and this is a good old fashioned AL, AL tangent. I did find one of those pictures where the guy says he's a time traveler and he's a lawyer now. And he said that when he was six years old, DARPA pulled him into a project and he jumped through some kind of force field and found himself at Gettysburg when Lincoln was about to make a speech. And there's a picture at the Library of Congress. I'll have it on the on the web page for this episode where you can see this little boy. There's all these people assembling and Lincoln is on his way to the dais to speak in the distance. And by the way, no one knew Lincoln was in this picture until 1957 when someone at the Library of Congress zoomed in on the glass plate or something and was like, that's Lincoln with his hat off in the distance. So that's a neat thing. But then on top of that, there's this little boy in the picture and he has really big, weird looking shoes. And this lawyer says that he time traveled with a DARPA thing when he was like six back to this moment. And then that's him standing there and his shoes disappeared during the time travel. And so they gave him shoes when he arrived and that's why they're really big. And he's standing in that picture and he insists that he had been there. And he also says that he time traveled to Mars with Barack Obama when Barack was a teenager. On top of that, this guy ran for president in 2016. His name's Andrew Basiago. So that's a Gettysburg time travel story. I'm going to let that lie there. But the, the description on that picture, it's interesting. It says, photo shows the crowd gathered for the dedication of the Soldiers National Cemetery in Gettysburg, where President Abraham Lincoln gave his now famous speech, the Gettysburg Address. When the photo was greatly enlarged, Lincoln is visible facing the crowd, not wearing a hat, about an inch below the third flag from the left. Josephine Cobb, first found Lincoln's face while working with a glass plate negative at the National Archives in 1952. So, interesting story there. I'm not sure if I believe Mr. Asiago. I'm, I'm looking at the picture, and I'm having trouble figuring out what I'm trying to find. Yeah. Well, do you see the little boy? Am I looking at the picture where there's an open area, and there's like three guys standing there? Yeah, and the little boy is standing to the left of them? Right, he's sort of looking away, and you yes. can see his full body. Yeah, he says that's him, that he time-traveled back to that when he was six. He's right in front of Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, all right. Well, it's a guy, it's a person. It's a guy. He does not look out of place. He's not wearing, you know, a uh, a Mickey Mouse t-shirt. Hey, I'll tell you, when you watch him in the YouTube videos, he's got some interesting details about working with DARPA, so, okay. I, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I probably wouldn't be casting a vote for him. But I, I did find another time slip that I thought was really interesting. This is called the Kersey time slip. And I wanted to talk to you guys about this really quick. I found two interesting sources for this. One is a Smithsonian.com article by writer Mike Dash, which was published in 2011. And the other is from another of our favorite websites, ParanormalScholar.com. That was written in 2019 by Eric Routon or Roten, R-O-W-T-O-N. Links to both original articles are in our show notes. But here's the story, and this is one I'd heard a little bit about, but I got more details on this today. In 1957, three British Royal Navy cadets, William Lang, Michael Crowley, and Ray Baker, were doing a training exercise using maps to navigate and notate things they saw as they walked through the British countryside. The goal of this was for them to go to this little village called Kersey Village, and uh, they were supposed to write down the things they saw and come back, and then their superiors would know that they had successfully navigated just using a nap, just based on their description of what they saw. So during the course of this exercise, they found themselves approaching that village called, quote, the most picturesque village in South Suffolk by the late Nicholas Pevsner, a German-British art historian. He liked it probably for paintings. 
According to Dash, Kersey was first referred to in an Anglo-Saxon will circa 900. So it's been around a long time. It is still a thriving community, but it is very small. In 2011, the population was only 359. In spite of that, it has churned out two prolific novelists, Hammondens and Peter Vansittart, who between them have published 80 novels, that very small town. But that's not important right now. What's important is that when these three boys wandered into the village in 1959, they had an eerily similar experience to Charlotte Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain. When the boys first saw the village in the distance, it seemed normal enough, but when they got closer, it was so quiet it seemed frozen in time. Sounds like a Jim Harold episode. Church bells they had heard when they were afar were no longer ringing, and they could not see a single living soul now that they were in the village. And keep in mind, this was a Sunday morning, but they noted that there were no cars. This is 1957. There were no cars, no overhead power lines, which there should have been, and no street lights. Plus, the homes all looked particularly ancient. And then they all went to look in the window of this butcher shop they saw. And when they looked in there, there was no furniture, no fixtures of any kind. But there were three whole oxen carcasses that had been skinned and were green because they were so old. This was a particularly poignant memory for the boys because by 1957, that sort of food handling would have been unthinkable. Now, every building they looked in had no furniture, and they described the glass of all the windows they looked through as green and kind of smeary. Now, according to the article at paranormalscholar.com, the trees were all lush and green at this time, even though it was autumn. Additionally, they noted they could see no church or pub when it was the church tower that they had heard the bells coming from on their approach. Now, like Moberly and Jourdain, the boys did some research after this event. It's very similar in the aftermath. And it's clear that they did that research because this had stuck with them. And one of the things it revealed was that the building that they had recognized as a butcher shop, which is still there, had not been a butcher shop for 50 years at the time of their visit. And they were very young, so there was no way for them to know that. That's what's called retrocognition. They've got information that they couldn't have ascertained any other way about the past, or theoretically, unless they were all in a library digging through when butcher shops were in this weird little building. Also, the church tower, they found, was finished in 1481. So like many churches, it sits on an elevated lot up high on a hill, and the tower is visible from both inside and outside of the village. Roten points out, or Routen points out in his article, that in the 1420s, Kersey experienced great wealth from the wool trade, and at the time, the church tower was not completed because after it was started, the Black Death wiped out over half the town's residents, and construction was halted. So with their research, they concluded they must have seen it sometime prior to 1481, but after 1420, because the wealth may have brought a butcher shop to town at a time when meat was a luxury product, a butcher shop would not have been a permanent structure in a village like Kersey. But listen to this description from Mr. Dash's uh, Smithsonian article. Quote, when the boys thought about it afterward, they recalled that even the autumn bird song faded as they neared the first houses. The wind had dropped to nothing too. Not a leaf stirred on the trees they passed, and the trees appeared to cast no shadows. End quote. So doesn't that remind you of when Moberly Jourdain, I can't remember which one of them, said that the forest was flat and lifeless like a wood made in tapestry, like a, I guess, a blanket or a tapestry hanging on a wall. Same thing they're saying here. There's no wind. The trees are not casting shadows. The color of the trees was wrong. 
So they went through this whole thing where they experienced it, and there were no power lines. There were no cars. There was none of this stuff. And then uh, later when they went back, everything was normal. Also, the other thing, though, that was fascinating about this, which is not in common with Moberly Jordan, is there was not a single human being, which is super creepy to me. Dead oxes inside the butcher shop that the meat's going bad on? That's straight out of a horror film right there. It is very reminiscent of other time slip stories, UFO stories, basically anything strange that happens to you in an outdoor environment, people talk about it. Things get quiet. You can't hear insects, can't hear birds. Everything stops. There's no wind. And then afterwards, it all starts up again. So one of the things that is also fascinating about this story is that after it happened, the women did a lot of research and eventually they published this book, which was, as Marie said, it was a sensation at the time. And it clearly was because here we are 110 years later still talking about the book. The event was longer. But when you look at time slips and you think about time slips and the idea of time slips and, and what they mean, this is the premier event. This is the one that kind of lays the groundwork for all the other ones, even the one I just mentioned happened in the 1950s, a long time after this one. So here's the question for you, Marie. Uh, you and I were discussing yesterday a lot of the philosophy behind how this legend came to be what it is and how the women were criticized for the nature of the publication. And there seemed to be an idea, well, well, they were confused. There was a guy, and he's on the Wikipedia page. I think his last name was Montague or something similar to Montague because I was always thinking Romeo and Juliet. But he was throwing parties near the grounds where people would dress up in period costumes and have these parties, and they would do what they call the tableau vivant, where they're reenacting maybe a painting or, or a particular idea from the time period. And he's like, they were probably just walking through on a day I was doing that. But they themselves said, hey, you know, we went and looked at that. We've heard that criticism. We looked at the dates those parties were happening, and we didn't find that any overlapped with the time that we were there, with that particular day, August 10th. So that just doesn't work. And that's that's one of those things, too, that, that we've talked about on the show before, where it's like, oh, well, that's what it was. This person had these parties. That's what they saw. Even though when you take a closer look, no, we've conclusively determined that there wasn't a party there on August 10th, 1901 which I can't say, by the way. We haven't done that much digging. I don't know if Montague or whatever his name was, was, and I'm not dismissing being, I sound like I'm being dismissive of him, but when I say whatever his name was, I honestly can't remember it. But I don't know if he did or didn't have a party that day, so I'm not saying that categorically. But what I am saying is like, you're, you're trying to pull away at the foundation. It's like, oh, well, they were confused. It was this, or it was, you know, swamp cast or whatever kind of situation. It was a weather balloon, which is my personal favorite. Right. That explanation makes no sense. Nothing about what they described sounded like a party. A party right. goes on. A party has a lot of people. A party you figure out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no connection here. Nice to have that information. They ruled out a ton of stuff. And there were very clear records of what was taking place at Versailles in the modern era. Right. When there were parties, when there was music. They had information that told us what the groundskeepers wore and how much they were getting paid. It's not like there was a lot of random stuff going on at Versailles that no one knew about. Everyone knew everything that was going on. If there was a party, everyone visiting Versailles would have known about it. That is not one of the better explanations of what happened. Yeah. Right. Marie, do you remember the other ones that were put forth beside the party? Wasn't there, it was just that they were confused or? They would have used any standard Victorian era response to right. credit them. They were women. They were hysterical. It was too hot for them. They shouldn't be taxing their brains. 
basically anything that they could throw at him, that would have applied. I think the interesting thing to note is if you step back and you kind of consider 1901 and when this was happening, you know, it basically is the turn of the century. So it's the fin de seal. So you're coming out of the late 1800s, especially in England, where there was a huge emphasis on the Gothic literature. You know, there was a lot of, just like any kind of like turning year 2000, you're going to see a lot of uncertainty about the future, about concern, about moral decay, and just a lot of uncertainty. But especially right at the turn of the century, you get authors like Bram Stoker writing Dracula, Robert Louis Stevenson with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, H.G. Uh, Wells, all of these graphic, gothic, big themes that are sort of dark and very persuasive coming into the turn of the century. And then 1901, all of a sudden there's a, there's a, a, a turn um, that started to happen after the death of Queen Victoria. And you start to see more women authors. Uh, you start to see more women readers. Again, you, you're all of a sudden seeing um, Wuthering Heights, Jane Eyre. Still this focus on sort of supernatural and more dark content, but it is becoming more um, more popular and sort of more uh, more democratic. Definitely more women authors at that time. And I think that that plays into the adventure with Moberly and Jourdain in that they are going and they are having this experience and then they are going to write about this experience a decade later. It's just a time of change of going from something very gothic and pretty heavy into something of more popular literature. The one thing that really was appealing to me about this story was the idea of influence. So I came to it understanding that it was the genesis for my favorite story, Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. And it made me start to think about influence and what is influence overall and how does influence play out in these women's life and how they related their story and then what that story has meant afterwards. So I went and I, um, in my research, I studied something, I went back and I took a look at something that I, I studied when I was in college, which is called The Anxiety of Influence. And it's a 1973 book by Harold Bloom. And Harold Bloom was a famous poet and he developed this theory from his own study of 19th century romantic poetry. And it is also modeled much on the work of Sigmund Freud and his psychoanalytic theory of the defense mechanisms that people have. So Bloom argues that basically there is nothing new under the sun. Right. And any kind of creative act that you have, um, be it a play, a work of art, any kind of creative output is heavily influenced by those who have done something similar beforehand. I knew, by the way, that the writer on our panel was going to be unmuting his mic any second, which he did <laughs> while you were talking about the nothing new under the sun nothing part. New, I was so ready to no, jump in because that's one of my... Under the sun, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, there isn't. And, and, and there should not be because don't reinvent the wheel. We figured out stories thousands of years ago. Don't put the ending first. Don't put the middle last. Tell your story. I agree. Nothing new under the sun. Everything that is created is influenced by what has been created in the past. I'm on board. Let's hear more. But there's a difference between, I think, like 
homage, which I am going to bring in these elements from these authors or from this cultural event that I love and pay homage to it, versus subconsciously being influenced. And Bloom, in his theory, says that's where the anxiety comes from, is realizing and having this tension that there's no unique output, that whatever you're doing is not really free will. It's not, you're not opening Zeus's brain and Athena springing forth. It has been done before you even thought of it. To me, that idea of influence is really interesting because I feel that it was something that was much at play between these two women. So my hypothesis is like something happened. They didn't know one another very well at this time. They go to this place and have something strange happen to them. It's the turn of the century. There's all this other cultural change happening. They come out of it and there's something weird and they start to kind of work, I want to say almost ping pong, but go back and forth and influence one another about the outcome of what their end result was. And some of that could have been from the anxiety that they had to try and get their work published because the the um, paranormal, oh my God, I'm going to butcher it. Oh, the was it the uh, Society for Psychical Research? Yes. SPR? The SPR okay. said, you know what? We're going to have to hold off. You're going to have to give us more information on it. Now, I'm not saying that this was a conscious thing or they sat down and they were like, dang, you know, we got we to gotta, we gotta get this published. We got to stick to the man and get this published and get this out there and make the big bucks. Let's get our story straight. I feel that it was much more of a subconscious effort than that. I believe that it influenced how they looked at research and how they developed research and how they might have created sort of some echo chamber to reinforce what they were already trying to find. Now, that said, I still think that at the very beginning, there could have been something that was strange or that happened to them. I think it is almost irrelevant to me is the real interesting part of the story, which is for a decade later, these two women who, again, came from not really knowing one another, this was sort of their origin story. They bonded over this and they never backed down from this. In fact, if anything, they doubled down every time they put out an edition. They said, you know what? You guys asked these questions. Here's what we did. You know what? Here's all of our answers. Here's where we found everything. And here's our substantiation to it. That to me is much more fascinating than did they or did they not see something? The other thing I keep coming back to is if it's about influence, like Rich said, there's nothing new under the sun, then what influenced them? Was there something that they drew subconscious influence from that was happening that would trigger this event? And I don't know. It could have been Versailles. It could have been meeting somebody new. It could have been a number of different things. But I feel like those are the big, how influence affected them in this, having this event occur. But then afterwards, I feel like the other thing to me that is the most remarkable is they wrote this book and the influence that it had on Shirley Jackson, who arguably wrote the most influential novel about haunting, period. Bloom goes in and he talks about sometimes, you know, there's a lot of ways that influence can affect you. You can have a reaction to it. 
So a lot of times you can read horror novels that have come out recently, um, sort of more post-colonial as a reaction to things as a reaction to racism and sexism. And there's a lot of good authors that have come out recently, like Sylvia Monroe Garcia with one of my favorite novels, recent Mexican Gothic, or The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham. Both excellent books that are sort of this reaction to the classic horror story. Again, like probably the most influential book about haunting written And then I kind of, from there, got a little bit, again, maybe I was listening to my Led Zeppelin, started to think, (laughs) what is influence if it's not a type of haunting? If you are feeling influence and there's nothing new under the sun, you're constantly having something with you looking over your shoulder from the dead that is always with you. It's always going to have some effect on you. Isn't that, in a way, being haunted? Oh, I love that idea. I love the philosophy behind that. I mean, you're redefining the nature of haunting there. But I I guess my question for you is that what influenced them, if they're predating haunting of Hill House, Mm -hmm. they're influencing each other. But what was their fodder? What came before them? What are they derivative of? It's almost impossible to say. It could be Versailles. It could be just the sheer magnitude of being in Versailles. It could be that they were intelligent, imaginative women. It could be turn of the century. It's one of those things that I don't think you're, we'll, we'll ever really know. And it's almost like a MacGuffin. Like I, again, I think the thing that is yeah. to me almost more impactful, but is what they created coming out of it has had such an effect on someone else who had such an effect. Again, we're still seeing it. Any author from Stephen King to Guillermo del Toro says there's only one book that's ever been written about a haunted house, and that's Haunting of Hill House. Well, I was going to say that when you go somewhere, when you go to a museum, when you go to a historic home and you take a tour, part of the narrative of that experience is to imagine what it was like when this house was first built. You hear lectures about history. You know, that's part of the fun is to walk around and go, gosh, what must it have been like back then? So it's totally acceptable that that might have been where their minds were. Even when they're outside just getting a breath of fresh air, wandering around the gardens, you know, looking where they might get a glass of water or something to eat, that's all fine. Most people don't have time slips and most people don't see ghosts when they go to these places. They did. So on the one hand, of course, they're in that mindset. But on on the other hand, anytime you're in any place with any history at all, when you're traveling, when you're on vacation, part of your brain casts you back. I don't think the human mind is so fragile that a significant portion of the population hallucinates a time slip when they go to a place even if they're thinking about how weird it would be to actually have a time slip. So that's why I say it's, it's impossible to know what it was because influence could be coming from anywhere. It could have been cultural. It could have been from each other. It is really difficult to pin down 
What I really like about what you're doing here, and I, I brought this up yesterday, I'm probably not using the word right. My brother-in-law with a, a doctorate in divinity will have to tell me, but this is an ontological approach to how are we thinking about how this story came to be. It's the same thing that was fascinating to me about the three boys that went to Kersey Village. Later, they did a bunch of research and decided what had happened. And so they're looking back on that and how are they influencing each other? And there's no way that they weren't strongly influenced by the moberly Jourdain incident because it was famous by 1950s. And if they're looking at time slips, they would have found that. Even pre-internet, that would have come up for them. Because somebody would have said, well, you know, you got to check out the thing with the two ladies that went to Versailles. And it's like, oh, yeah. So they, I'm sure that that happened. It's, it's impossible to think that it didn't. But what's fascinating to me is, and having covered a lot of stuff over the years, and the folklore component of it. And, it, and if I was to go back to school, we've had people on the show in Britain in who have degrees in folklore. I'm, I'm so envious of that. Like, if I was going to go back to college now at this late date in my life, that would be what I would study, would be folklore and the origins of folklore and how it develops, because how that intertwines with these kinds of stories is fascinating to me. What I want to figure out is, you know, Forstner are always trying to get to that kernel of truth, like, okay, the Pied Piper, it's, it's an insane story, but what what happened that one day, that time, that when all these kids died? When we looked at that, it was like several hundred kids died really quickly. Okay, what was that? And then it goes through all these filters and all these things that influence the story that it becomes later and they were went off into the mountain and never came back or whatever, what have you. It's like you're always clawing through the past and trying to figure out what the real story is. And I guess what I want to ask you, because I find your approach to the philosophy of this story and what these two ladies might have encountered, it's way more inclusive of different possibilities. It's a broader thinking than than I'm used to, frankly. Like I've learned something from you and your approach here, different from things. It's going to affect my approach moving forward after nine years of doing our show. So I, I just want you to say, like, I really appreciate what you brought to the table with this. And I guess what I'm trying to find out from you is with that point of view that you just explained, what do you think actually happened on August 10th, 1901 to these two ladies. What do you, do you have any idea before they did 10 years of back and forth on it and published a book about it? What part of it is the craziest part that it's like, I think that might be one of the seed things that they yeah. witnessed? Well, first of all, thank you. And it is a pleasure to have had these years uh, to get to do this stuff with you. It may be that, so I'm trying to think of like, what is the origin? I, I believe there was something weird that happened. I don't necessarily think it had to be a really big thing. Like when you were telling the story back and forth, like when we were talking about this and we were talking about like, oh, it, it's like a frozen tableau and it looks like a tapestry and it's 2D. And it, it reminded me of what we talked about earlier, which was the 2D wolf right? Again, that's from Monsters Among Us, Linda Godfrey that we referred to right. earlier. That was a story in her book right. about a wolf that came out of the corn, a family saw it, and it turned a certain direction and it became literally a straight line. When I read that, I had sort of a sea change internally. Like I felt like that to me scared me. That's a frightening thing. I don't know what yeah. it was that was frightening, but I think that they experienced something like that. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it actually 
the physicality of it came down to them seeing the man at the kiosk or the page running up to them or seeing the woman's, you know, sketching. They had some kind of terror event that triggered this. I think everything after that is almost is people playing out their normal lives and sort of either trying to rationalize it or trying to put a timeline around it. Right, trying to frame it. Or trying to get the context to frame it. I think that that is something that that happens because, you know, again, you're trying to make sense of it. To your point, you're like, I'm one of those people. Like if, you know, they're like, well, that can never be solved. There's no way of knowing. And I'm like, that's because you're lazy. Get me a book, you know. Right. <laughs> but I do think that... I think that you, that instinct exists in everybody and you want to find out what it is. Something, I don't know what it was, but I know that if it fueled it, it was either terrifying enough or beautiful enough to keep them together for that amount of time and to not ever be able to put it down, right? So again, I think it could be something terrifying and scary. It could have been something beautiful and moving. It was something momentous like that. And I think that that is the case. Okay. I love it. I'm going to say that I think it happened exactly as they said it happened. I think we have a really good record of what they experienced. And then we have a really good record of them researching what they experienced. It's so hard for us. It's almost like the more, the more you can prove something, the less you want to believe it. If they hadn't done the subsequent research, people would have complained about that. And I'm referring now to the, throughout history, the people who have complained about this case. And I agree with Marie. It certainly didn't help that it's two women, two crazy broads who got all up in their emotions. It's just too simple an argument to make. And it's, of course, misogynist that, well, they can't be trusted because they're women. What these women did was they went back and they checked their work and they did all the research that could be expected. And like you said, as further editions of the book came out based on questions that were brought up, they answered those questions as best they could. They weren't able to answer all of them because some of them involved doing research that led them into areas where they hit brick walls and they're just like, I'm sorry. There are certain records available in certain places and others there just aren't. But to the degree that we've been able to do our research, here is what we have found. The other thing about that that I think is interesting, and it's the conundrum for any experiencer, really, is if they go on to talk about the experience they had, by definition, it just becomes less and less contemporaneous to them over time. And they do the research, and then they're just, but they're getting farther and farther away from the actual incident. It must be so hard to like call that back because then the other thing that's happening is if you're telling the story over and over to yourself, like Bob Gimlin, for example, who I saw, you know, decades after he, or I should say who Forrest and I both saw and met and talked to decades after he met Patty in, you know, the the most famous Bigfoot film of all time, his story, he's told it so many times. You do wonder like how when folks get into that routine of like, okay, well, here's what happened to and you're talking and talking, talking about it and you're portraying it in a book or you're taught make in, in the more modern age, you're having talks and being invited places and to answer questions. There's no way that that process can't get muddy and then it becomes harder. That's what's so great about the accounts when you find these stories and the accounts are like really close to when it actually happened. Right. Yeah. Well, right, and w- which is the case here. And yeah. at the time, writing was something that everybody did because people would write letters. That's how you communicated right. much more than now. So right. the fact that within a week or so of the original event, 
they both checked in with each other and said, was, was there something weird about that day? Yes, there was. Okay, let's write it down. And the one woman was already writing it down because when you went on a trip, you wrote letters. Hey, here's what we did last Wednesday. Right. And so she was already committing her story to paper. Right. And this isn't something that just evolved through the oral tradition and like some sort of historical game of telephone, it's turned into something else. Their recollections were primarily recorded through their hands onto paper. Right. And again, that's what's so great about it is that it happened during an era when that's how people interpreted their reality by writing it down in a journal, in a letter, in a book. And they did that. What more do we want from them? What more do we want from these two people who had this experience? And Rich, to your point, they held positions in high regard kind of in society and were employed by Oxford University. So they had a lot to right. lose by coming out with this stuff or at least staying even when they their names came out. They they didn't renounce it, you know, for the sake of of the the college or, you know, to be looked more respectable. They 100% stayed with the same story. Right. One of the things I like about their story is that they didn't both experience exactly the same thing. Again, we right. talked about it in part one, but I'll I'll repeat it here. I think the go-to narrative would be, okay, you and I went there and we experienced the same thing. Yeah. You're backing me up. I'm backing, I'm backing you, you up. up. Yeah. So to step out and go, first of all, I saw things that she didn't see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't see that. I saw this. Yeah. Right. And vice versa. So we're we're really telling you as honestly as we can what each one of us individually experienced. That's going to wrap up our special two-part series on the Ghosts of Versailles. A very special thanks to our guest hosts, Richard Haddam and Marie Mayhew. We'll be back in two weeks with a new show, for which I anticipate my dear friend Forrest will be back on the mic. If you haven't already, find and subscribe to the other two shows from the Astonishing Legends Network, Scared All the Time, and The Midnight Library, wherever you get your podcasts. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, the mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. I'm Tom. I'm the dispatcher. I'm John Paul Decker. Tom. Decker. Tom. Decker. Tom. Dispatcher. I understand this is with no implied promise. First purchase. I'm Tom. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Carestia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at DeadStreetProductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. 
No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.